the American Theatre Wing, and the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts bring you the American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre. This session, the casting director. Hello, I'm Ted Chapin with the American Theatre Wing, and with me is casting director Jim Carnahan. Hello. Welcome, Jim. Thank you. I should start by saying that you are not only the casting director of the Roundabout Theatre, but one of Broadway's preeminent casting directors, represented by several shows on Broadway and a couple coming up. <laughs> Let's start at, at, at the beginning. Um, I'd love you to define for us what a casting director is and what the responsibilities of a casting director are. Basically, it's, it's a matter of being the middleman between the director and the actors, or the director, the producers, and the actors, depending on the situation. So that our basic job is to, as you begin a show, define a list of actors, which you write out to submit to the director for his approval or discussion, of actors who seem right for the parts. You deal with the agents to set up the auditions. You then run the auditions. You bring the actors into the room. Uh, you schedule the callbacks. You're basically the the go-between between actor and director. So you sort of, so you sort of direct the casting as the you direct the casting <laughs> exactly, uh, and try to direct the room as well as you can as well. Now, obviously, um, one doesn't sort of uh, get come full blown onto the world as a casting director. Um, but I guess one of my my curious first questions is: Did you always know you wanted to be a casting director? No, actually, I was an agent for many years. Uh, I was an agent here in New York and then an agent in California and uh, woke up one day and went, I want to go back to the theater and I want to work in casting. And called Todd Hames, who's the artistic director of the Roundabout Theater, and said, I want to come back to New York and I want to work in casting at your theater. And it all worked out. I would that but it, it, it was the, uh, for years people had said to me that I was uh, too much of a casting director as an agent, because I wouldn't push wouldn't the push wrong your... actors. I would always kind of go, well, this one seems right for the role, so maybe you should talk think about this one. So it's, but there, there used to be, there were quite a few, actually, agents who became casting directors and casting directors who became agents, because they're kind of interchangeable fields in many ways, because you're dealing with actors and uh, your knowledge of actors is an important part of either of those jobs. And, and you should like actors for both. And you guys. should like actors for both. Well, that, I mean, obviously part of that is instinct, because if, 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 you're, if, if you as an agent were instinctively trying to find the, the right person, um, did, you, did you begin your career secretly wanting to be a director or an actor? No, never. I actually just wanted to be in this business and came to New York and thought, I'll be an agent, because it, I loved actors. Never wanted to be one, but loved actors. And so I thought agenting would be the proper way to do it. And then as the years went on, I decided to change and go into casting, which is actually much more fulfilling vis-a-vis uh, working with yeah. actors, because you're actually much more involved in it. But if somebody were interested in being a casting director, would you advise them to do one, take one particular route? No, I mean, the, the, the way most casting directors become casting directors is they start as casting interns and casting offices. Um, almost every, all of my associates started as interns. And every casting office has interns, particularly in the not-for-profit world, but in the 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 offices that do strictly commercial work as well all have interns and that's how everyone else i know has kind of started and um, do you feel that the interns are, are are interning at a casting director because they like to be casting or do you think it's a sort of an entrance into the entire broadway theater or off-broadway theater or you know whatever? i think it's an entrance into the theater and it's an entrance into the artistic side of the of the theater there aren't that many jobs on the artistic side uh, particularly in not-for-profit theater 
um, in not-for-profit theater, you basically have an artistic director, a casting director, and a literary director. And that's your artistic staff. Uh, whereas the, the, the financial side is, or the development side is, there's lots of people that support a theater. But on the artistic side, there are very few. So for kids that are interested in looking at the artistic side, a lot of people who want to be directors will come in and intern as a casting director because it's, most directors will tell you they'll somewhere between 75 and 90 percent of the job of making a show good is casting the right. show properly. Um, so you would, you would encourage the idea of, of somebody who thinks he or she wants to be a director to be an intern at a casting It's office. always a very good idea. I mean, it really does give you a sense of how it works, and you also get to work with, you get to work with the directors. So, um, and but, then what I've seen is some of my associates have decided they don't want to be directors and will stay and become casting directors. And quite a, uh, I think I've had three of them now that go off and leave me and go assistant director, major Broadway director, and then they'll come back when I need them for, uh, for projects and stuff like that. But you'll find that a, that a lot of casting directors wanted to be directors. That seems to be, I'm an exception to that, but many of them started wanting to be directors, actually. Are, are there any things, any ultimate goals in the theater that you think would be a bad idea for someone to, to want to be and then come to a casting office as an intern? No, because, I mean, even, I mean, it's a little dangerous having someone who wants to be an actor in a casting office. That could be a little dangerous. But it's also incredibly enlightening. You know, we've had that, too, as, uh, for our interns have, have oftentimes been actors. And it will scare many a person off of being an actor by working in a casting office. Um, not a bad idea, necessarily. Not a bad idea, because you realize how tough it is and what tiny little threads an actor's life hangs by. Uh, and that's something you get a real sense of when you work in a casting office. It's the agent pushing someone, the director's mood, the casting director's mood. Um, and those things really affect who get jobs. So um, uh, we've had a lot of actors as well now, start that way. I know that y you have a unique position, which I want to talk a little bit about, because you, you are the Roundabouts casting director right. and also your artistic advisor title as well, right. I believe, right. which I assume came after a period of time when you proved yourself invaluable to the institution. Well, it's also not-for-profit. They give you titles instead, instead of, money. of money. It's a whole, you know, it's a whole thing with not-for-profit, but... That's very important. <laughs> um, but you also operate as an independent casting right. director, and you have a relationship with Roundabout that lets you to do that, right. allows you to do that out of your office right. at Roundabout. Right. But what I was going to ask is, is, is there a difference in the way casting directors are paid from in the not-for-profit theater at Roundabout as you are and in the commercial world? Well, there, I mean, what happens at Roundabout is I'm given a staff salary, which is, a, uh, I would imagine, probably in the middle to high echelon of what not-for-profit salaries are. I think most casting directors at the New York theaters probably are. We're certainly below the development director and the artistic director and the managing director. But we probably fall right underneath that category. Right. You know, So it's that kind of higher echelon of the middle salary range of not-for-profit. And then in commercial theater, um, it can vary. I mean, it depends on your experience. It depends on your agent. Um, right. We do have agents. Um, and, an, and an association you I know, want to get to in a moment. Yes, but um, you know, for a straight play, you tend to make ten to ten thousand to seventeen thousand five, something like that. As a fee. As a fee. And what and does that fee cover? That fee covers the casting of the show up to the first preview. So it includes all the consultations, all the lists, all the auditions, all the principal casting, and all the understudy casting. Um, 
And then, so for a straight play, it's I'd say somewhere between ten and seventeen five. For a musical, it's somewhere between seventeen five and. I would imagine, I haven't gotten this yet, but I imagine people do get up to like 35, depending on what the show is and what your relationship is with the producer. Why, why would a musical be more expensive? Musicals take a lot more time and there are a lot more people. Um, In terms of cast or just the people who are on your side of the, of the table making in, the decision? In terms of cast and in terms of who's on the other side of the table, I mean, musicals are much more difficult to cast um, in that in a straight play you tend to have uh, at most, you have a writer, a producer, and a director. That's the most you have uh, on the other side of the table. And with as many revivals, certainly, as The Roundabout does, the author is usually not present. Right. <laughs> and even in the case of London transfers, I've, I've, done quite a, I've done both Copenhagen and the, the initial Broadway production of Copenhagen and the revival of Noises Off, and in neither case was Michael Frayn involved. Um, when I cast the, the uh, revival of True West just recently, Sam Shepard wasn't involved. So it's always kind of an awkward thing as you walk up to, at the opening night party and say, you don't know me, but we've just done the show together. Um, but Shame on so, them, they so should be there. It's, it's much, well, it's, it's their trust of the director. Mm -hmm. I mean, because in both cases, the productions had been done, all three cases, I should say, the productions had been done before, and all three cases done in London. And so there was a certain amount of trust with the director, and so they, they put all the power in the director's hands at that point. Um, so you really are a collaborator. A casting director really is a, an important collaborator. More, particularly, I think, on straight plays. More so on straight plays. You know, we've done a couple of Pinter plays at, at the Roundabout, and Harold is always uh, informed of what's going on, but he's never, he's not present, you know. Mm -hmm. um, but wouldn't, wouldn't a straight play be more time-consuming simply because, I mean, some, in a musical, someone can sing and they're, they're out of there. They can't cut it, you know, and then you can right. bring them back. But I would think somebody doing a, a straight play audition must take longer. It can't. The, the other thing that tends to happen in straight plays is that they, especially commercially and also in the not-for-profit world, uh, who are we kidding, they tend to be more star-driven than musicals do. Um, so the amount of time you spend is not so much time in the audition room as it is time on lists and making offers to stars mm -hmm. or, or trying to see if a star is interested. Um, that's pr particularly true of small cast plays. Right. Um, not as true of larger cast plays. Right. I mean, Noises Office is a good example where a lot of the cast came from the audition room and a couple of the people of the title did not come from the audition right. room. Mm -hmm. uh, and in musicals, you tend to see every role. Uh, we don't have that many musical theater stars. And so, you know, a lot of musicals are cast-driven. I mean, are, mm -hmm. are cast totally right. in the room. The days of doing a musical around a star, unless it's a revival, are over, as yeah. far as I can tell. You know. I just want to finish up the money. In addition to the fee, right. you get a royalty? You then get a royalty every week, uh, which can be, for a straight play, is somewhere usually between 250 and 750 and for a musical is somewhere between 750 and 1250 Um And for that, are you, are you on call for You're on call for everything. You're on call for replacements. Uh, if they need lists, they're dodgy areas. Like if they 
are starting to think about a tour. They don't actually pay you for the tour, but because you're doing the Broadway show, you'll kind of do lists for the tour and stuff like that, unless the tour gets officially set up, which is unusual. But if it is, are you often the casting director of the tour? If you're been? always guaranteed the, you are always guaranteed first refusal on any future production that is under the auspices of the same producer. Uh, and, and now, you, there is a casting society. There is. It, there's, it is not a union yet. It is called the Casting Society of America, CSA. And um, we're slowly moving towards possibly becoming a union. And one of the things that, vis-a-vis -vis fees, there are no set minimums. There are no, uh, there is no standardized contract. And one of the things that we are trying to do is to get a standardized contract. Because when you go to negotiate, we all kind of rely on each other. Well, how much did you get? It's kind of there are no set rules, mm -hmm. and we're trying to make some set rules. For do that, do so, you so. see you, yourselves joining forces with some other union? Because I know some of the theatrical unions have press agents and managers or, and stage managers are with equity and I stuff. I think that's part of what is going on is approaching certain unions about whether we would fit into the profile of their union and so that's a, a process that's starting it's I would say just in the beginning yeah. stages but hopefully it will happen because there should be minimums there should be rules about things like that particularly one thing that will happen is you'll cast a show in a regional theater my partner at the roundabout Amy Christopher um, cast for Williamstown she's the casting director for the Williamstown Theater Festival and they've had quite a few shows come in over recent years and She's always, she's always ended up casting the shows as they've come in. But you're not protected at all. There's no amount of money that you're... And it's a way for producers to save money oftentimes is they'll take a cast from a regional theater and not pay the casting director properly. Yeah, well, that's, that's why the organizations like the Casting Society of America get formed. Exactly. So please, don't, don't mess up. <laughs> now, obviously, as a casting director, you have to coordinate with, among other things, actors' equities rules. Have, right. They have fairly strict rules about casting, do they not? Well, they, they have, again, more so they have rules about, there are more rules for musicals because there are chorus rules. Um, and there are, what you do have to do in every case is you always have to do a set of open auditions for equity members before you can begin casting, uh, before you can begin regular casting sessions, appointment casting sessions, if you will. Um, and for musicals, you have to have both a chorus call and you have to have what are called equity principle auditions. Um, These are that's a rule set by equity, that right? That is a rule set by equity. Do you, as the casting director, have to be there in person, or can you send the deputy? Uh, one of my associates can go instead of me. And is um, it one day, two days, or is it, does it... It depends on the show and depends on how many... It, normally, the rule is three. Uh, it depends on the show as to whether they will bring it. You ask for dispensations if you're casting a two-character play and there's a star attached. Yes, you don't need for three days. Person. So, uh, you know, they also tend to be, I mean, in my experience, for musicals, they actually tend to be quite useful, um, especially the chorus calls. I've never done a Broadway musical or, or a musical at the roundabout that someone from the open call, the open chorus call, did not end up in the show. Uh, so they are very valuable. The open chorus calls for musicals are indeed very valuable. And do, do they tend to be, um, obviously they have to be equity members right. only, right? Yes, although you can come, wait till the end of the day. If you're a non-equity member, you can wait till the end of the day, and if time permits, they will see you. On certain shows, like Cabaret, which I've been casting for many years, we always saw those people because this, this specific, the specificity of what we were looking for was such that 
you wanted to see everybody because you were looking for something so specific. I'm sure the same thing would apply in a case like rent. Right, instrument playing, um, <laughs> or sleazy looking. Or looking for very young people, uh, that right. sort of thing. You would, you would encourage the non-union people to come, wait till the end of the day, and then see them either that day or reschedule them for another time. So certainly you as a casting director, an important New York casting director, would give advice to young actors to come and go to any of those if you can. Absolutely, absolutely. Particularly the musicals. I mean, straight plays tend to be a little different tend to be a little different. Although we have found young actors, when you're, when you're looking for young actors, they can sometimes come in handy, particularly for understudies. Yeah. You know. Do you, do you, okay, now as a casting director with your own office, right. do you have open calls? Just, just to see, I mean, how? No, what you do is, what happens, the way you start a show is, um, uh, you'll break down the list of characters. You'll take the script and you'll break down the list of characters. Um, giving specifics of what you're looking for in each case. Uh, with classic what, plays, you what tend you, to be a you, uh, what you, your what take the on... the director. Okay. I, mean, I you, should be clear about that. Uh, I mean, the first thing you do is you sit with the director. He hires you, you, or the producer hires you, but obviously a relationship with the director is key. It depends. Uh, sometimes I'm brought in by the director, many times. I mean, at the roundabout, they're given me. Right. <laughs> they have no choice. <laughs> um, so when a director comes to the roundabout, I am either myself or Amy, uh, we will either cast it separately or we will cast it together. Um, on a commercial show, I am sometimes hired by the producer first. Um, sometimes, uh, oftentimes what will happen is that it's a director I have a relationship with and they will request me and then the producer will hire me. Uh, but more and more I find that producers are hiring casting directors in the beginning to flesh out lists. I've been hired before directors, uh, particularly on musicals in development. Um, because they'll want to hear it first and they'll want to have directors see it. So I've, in some cases, in musicals in particular, been brought on before the director is brought on. Um, so then, so then for the best. What? Then you just hope for the best when the director gets there. So, but it, sort of the, the place of the director is in, in that instance taken by the writers, I would assume. Exactly. So exactly. That, that you, if, you, if you're going to have a dialogue with somebody about what are you looking for here, it would be the... You always start with the director. Um, and so basically the first step in any project is you read the script and then you sit down with the director and go, okay, exactly what is it we're looking for? You know, can it go this way? Can it go that way? Uh, Non-traditional, uh, colorblind, you know, all of that sort of, those sorts of questions one has to answer. And then I will sit down and write down a breakdown of each of the characters, describe the characters, and any specifics we're looking for. Obviously, on musicals, you try to include vocal ranges and that sort of thing. That's then posted. It's sent out by a service called Breakdown Services to all the agents and managers in both New York and Los Angeles. And we get submissions. They then type up with these names the names of the actors that they think are appropriate, they send the pictures and resumes to us, and that's what we start from. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, there are also, obviously, lists that I've generated beforehand, so before you get to that step, you've called about X number of actors. That's also, that breakdown is also what appears in the trade papers for the EPAs, uh, which is what the, the equity auditions right. are called, uh, equity principal auditions. So it's the same thing so that the union members who don't have agents or want to come to the open calls know exactly what it is we're looking for. So that's the first step. Um, and then the second step is going through and looking through those submissions and knowing the people you know you want to bring in 
And then what tends to happen is agencies will have new people that you don't know, and you'll do something called a pre-screen, uh, in which the director is not there, and it's just me or me and my casting associate. Sometimes on a musical, it's me and the musical director. Um, and you'll go through the new people to see who you want to bring in for the director. So that's how you keep track of new talent. And that would be one day's worth of pre-screening and, every, day, and everybody would know that's what it is, right? One, yes, one day or two days, depending on the project. Uh, again, But they wouldn't be interspersed within a day of other things. It no, would they would not. They would be something devoted. separate and they usually precede whatever you're doing with the director. I just cast a, a revival of Into the Woods and we saw, we pre-screened, I think it was 300 girls for Little Red Riding Hood oh. and a similar number of boys for Jack because it's a young role. You're looking for a kid. There aren't going to be that many people with experience. Whereas, you know, for roles like The Baker's Wife or The Witch, there were no pre-screens because right. anyone that I was going to bring in for those roles are, are people that I'm going to know and know their work. So it depends on the project as to how many of those you do. Now, how, how, do you, how other than the pre-screens, do you keep up on new talent? Do you go, you to, the theater go to the theater almost every night of your life? <laughs> do you ever stay home? <laughs> you, not often. And when you are staying home, you're watching a movie so that you can keep up with those actors as well. Um, so, uh, you know, it's that, it's that old thing of your avocation becoming your vocation. Be careful what you wish for right. because it will happen if you're a 13-year-old child dreaming of, oh, God, it would be so great to be in New York one day and go to the theater every night and then... Then you realize. grow up and you go to the theater and I go, oh, God, do I really have to go again right. tonight? Um, it's like, I am the tired businessman. Exactly. Right? <laughs> and, uh, and, and your holidays become, truly become mm -hmm. busman's holidays. Mm -hmm. You go to London and you see 10 shows in eight days and that's your holiday. So, right. um, but, that, but it is the most exciting thing. I mean, it, 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 there's nothing like finding an actor that, that you don't know their previous work and seeing, my God, that person's fantastic. It's ego-wise more exciting when you see it in an audition room than when you see it on a stage cast by somebody else, but nonetheless, it's always exciting. Now, if you do see somebody in a, in a, in a pre-screen or something and you get excited about it, do you, do you deal with the directors differently as to whether, it, uh, can you say to some directors, this is the most exciting person I've seen, or do you have to take a sort of, here's a list of eight people and have that director come to the conclusion? Well, one of the most difficult things about being a casting director is that for every director, you have to be a different kind of casting director. And it's, you can't be the same, you can't handle every show the same way as a casting director because every director is different. And it totally depends on the director as to how you do that. You know, some of them, some of the directors I work with often are, in fact, among my closest friends. Others I have a very cordial, you know, but it is still, we are business associates, we are not. So it, it, it depends on the director as to how that goes. Also, you never oversell. Because there are very few directors who want a casting director to cram an idea down their throat. Our job really basically at the beginning is to bring them into a room. That's our job. Right. And our job is not to cram. Our job is not to force. Our job is not to try to build it that way. It's to see what the director responds to. The first session is always like the first day of school because you don't quite know what it's going to be. You don't know what the room is going to, if it's a director you haven't worked with. You don't know if he's going to be warm to actors or, or a little more removed from actors. You don't really know, you think you know exactly what he's looking for. But until you've been in a room with a director and seen a first day of people, it's, oh, so that's the way he's going with this role. Because with many roles, you can go many different ways. So, so you try to bring in an assortment and then see which way the director goes towards. So, so the kind of personal qualities that you feel a casting director should have being... 
um, an enormous egomaniac who comes in the room and announces what's what's right doesn't go on that list. It doesn't fly with any of the people I've worked with. <laughs> let me let me say. Um, sometimes you have to be a little cagey um, with directors, but you can never. I've never known one you can force one into it. You can kind of slide them into it sometimes, um, and you usually need a producer's help for that. Um, you know, there's a myth that I mean, we have yes, I mean we have a certain amount of power in that. We do control many of the people get into the room, but we don't decide who gets hired. That's not our job. Uh, that's the director's job and or the producer and writer's job. Uh, but, of course, if it is somebody that you've discovered and you've been there quietly, you can jump up and down, yay, well, if yeah, the I director mean, there, says. There are people like, I mean, a, an example for me right now is Katie Finneran, who is an actress that I have adored for years since I saw her do a very small part in The Heiress. Um, not a roundabout production. Not a roundabout production, cast by Daniel Swee, right. uh, who is always a big Katie Finneran fan. And through the years, I've used Katie Finneran in readings and introduced her to directors. And there would be times in readings because you usually don't have auditions for readings. But Katie was not a known commodity, and I would say to directors, that is the case when you will do that. Meet this actress before we cast it. She's exactly what you're looking for. Right. And Katie did a few readings through that, and I cast her, and she's been cast in a couple of things at the roundabout. And then she got cast in Noises Off, which has changed her career, and that's a thrilling feeling, you know. Um, and that was a case where when I was assigned the job, it's like there's only really one person who can really play this part, and it's Katie. But again, in, in that instance, did you urge that the director meet her and talk to her or uh, have her audition? Or She auditioned, and other people auditioned as well. Um, and in fact, it came down to between two people. Uh, there were two different ways to go, and... Uh, he, on his own, decided to go Katie instead of with the other actors, which was a, would have been a totally different take on the role. Um, but am I also right that when that decision is made, it's probably to your advantage not really to tell that director that you'd wanted her from the very beginning? Most of the time. Just to most say, great. I mean, there are times, it's like there are times when you, again, depending on the director, you can say, this is who, especially if you're up against the wall. Uh, occasionally, a casting director is called in to help out on another project with a director. And when you're very close to a director, you can say, this is the person I think you're going to want to hire. Right. But that's based on having worked with that person quite a few times and knowing what their taste is and knowing who they're going to respond to and who they're not going to respond mm -hmm. to for the most part. Now, I mean, you, you are a human being. You have your own tastes, right. as we all do. Are there actors, and I don't want names, are right. there actors that you, whose work you just don't fancy and really don't want to, to come in? Yes. That's the first half of the question. Right. The second half of the question is if a director or a producer says, I'd like to see that person. You always bring them in. Right. And there are certain people that, I mean, that is one of the more difficult things about casting that aren't to your taste, but because of where they are in the business or because other people obviously like them because they work a lot, you feel like it's part of your, I feel like it's part of my job to bring them in. Now, it's I've usually had directors respond to them the same way I have. That's one of the trickiest things about being a casting director is praying and that you and the director's taste align. I have had one occasion where that did not work, and it was not a pleasant experience for me because I would sit in the same room with the director, and the director would see one thing and I would see another, and ultimately the director cast the show. So, you know, there, there are those of us who want asterisks by names and programs going, we didn't really want right. this person, <laughs> the director insisted, but you can't do that. Right. So you take the good with the bad. But then if that director 
If there's a choice in the future and that director asks for you and you're busy, that's okay. Yes, that's okay. Is that a nice way to put that? Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> but usually that won't happen because it, it is a sort of relationship where you know the relationship is working or the mm -hmm. relationship isn't working. And, you know, there are, there are certain directors that I will, you know, I have a really wonderful relationship with and I will probably do most of the shows that they cast unless they go mm -hmm. to another theater that has a staff casting director, yeah. such as Lincoln Center or Manhattan Theater Club or The Public. Now, just, this is a, a, a question that fascinates me. Most auditions are held in a theater, correct or no, not correct? they're not. In fact, they're almost never held in a theater anymore. Um, and interestingly enough, I just had a director say to me, I will never do auditions, final callbacks in an audition room again. I've never done final auditions in anything but an audition hall. Um, Which with can the exception... Vary in size. I mean, some of them can be very small. Yes. We have... I remember once at the roundabout, there was an actress that had basic. It was a young role. And uh, it was an actress who had basically done television and film. It's not an embarrassing story. I can mention her name. It's Brittany Murphy. And she came into the room and read with Anthony LaPaglia for View from the Bridge. And we freaked out because she didn't have much theater on her resume, but it's the role of Catherine in View from the Bridge, and it's a very young role. She's amazing, but can she fill a theater? So we actually did those callbacks on our stage for Arthur, because the callbacks were for Arthur Miller, to see if Brittany could indeed fill a theater, that it wasn't just someone who could act on film. So in those cases, you do do it. You, you will do that with an actor that has basically done film or television to see if they can fill a theater. Um, it's an old-fashioned approach, actually. It's also very expensive, which is the reason most just, producers just don't do it. To get into the theater. To, to get the into theater. the theater. Uh, even if you're in there, there are union costs involved, and you have to have someone from the union there. So it's expensive. In a rehearsal hall, you don't need anyone. So they're not done, actually, typically, in a theater. But do you have a studio in your office? No. You, we have rehearsal space at the roundabout, and then there are various rehearsal spaces around town that you will rent. Um, and in a commercial situation, you are responsible for planning those auditions and finding the hall, right? Exactly. I mean, the producer I, pays for it, but the you... The producer pays for it, but you arrange all those things. Same thing at the roundabout. I mean, oftentimes our rehearsal space, our spaces are filled with shows that we are rehearsing, so I have to look for outside space. Mm -hmm. um, that's another lovely thing about casting a musical, uh, something we were alluding to earlier, is that uh, juggling the schedules of a musical director, a choreographer, a producer, a writer, a composer, a lyricist, and a director can be a logistical nightmare. When three of them live in London anyway. Yes, exactly. Uh, although, you know, directors, especially directors with limited availability, people will tend to rally and kind of come to the fore there. But musicals, that's another reason why musicals are so difficult, is, you know, final callbacks for a new musical, you can have 20 people in a room making a decision mm. and 20 people having a voice in that decision. And... Is there always a leader, a leader? The leader should all, in an ideal world, the leader is the director. That is the way it should always be. Um, and in, most, in my case, it has usually been that. I can think of very few examples where ultimately, you know, the director doesn't listen to everyone's advice, particularly the ones that are very apt politically, and most of them are. They wouldn't be successful directors. Um, politically, they, among the people. Among the, the people. And they listen to everyone, and then they'll go... I understand your point, I understand your point, but I believe that this is the most important thing and therefore we will hire this person. Um, it can be difficult. There are producers that, commercial producers, um, that can be particularly demanding about names. 
Uh, that's something that will happen a lot with directors, uh, where the the this is constant debate in commercial theater with straight plays. You know, go for the name or go for the actor that can do it. You'll tend to find your director saying, "I need actors who can make this play work, and if we make this play work, it will become a success." And producers saying, "No, we must have stars." When we cast Copenhagen uh, here. There was great fear amongst the producers that if we did not have box office names, that a play about nuclear right. fission would not work. And Michael Blakemore was insistent that, um, I mean, there were a couple of stars on the list that he was happy to go to. And when those stars passed, he was insistent on having solid New York actors in that show. And, of course, and the producers all thought we were going to tank. And the show, I think, paid back in 16 right. weeks and, you know, now has two tours out. Right. Um, and that was a case of a director saying to the producers, no, uh, I know that I need good, solid actors, not stars. Now, in, in, how did you chime in on that, on that debate in Copenhagen? That was a very difficult one for me because I was the, again, you're the middleman. So you're, you, I was the person in that case, the producers saying, get me lists of stars. So you do the list of stars mm -hmm. for the producers. You have to. It's your job. They pay you. You check those interests. You then say to the director, these are the people that they want me to to check on this is what I found out. And then you're, in that case, you know, you also get to say to the producer, this is what the director wants. So in cases like that, it can be very, it can be a very tense position to be in. And it depends on the power of your director as to who ultimately wins, wins. that battle. And, and when you're in a, an audition and you have gone through the list, whatever the list is, stars or not, right. and, it, and it is dry, and that's your list, and nobody wants anything, and you go back to your office, what do you do to come up with a new list? You go through everything. And, and it's, it's, it is rare, I think, that you say there is no one else. Um, usually what a casting director will say or what I will say is, I can show you more people. I don't think there's anyone else of the quality that we've seen. But if you want to see more people, I will do that. That's my job, you know. Um, but are, are there agents who you have a special relationship with, or are there people in your office who you would say, does anybody, I mean... Oh, well, you do that all the time. I mean, right. my st I have a staff. I mean, I have a partner at the roundabout, Amy Christopher, and then I have two associates and an assistant. So when you're stuck, you just scream out, well, any of us, whichever project we're going, we'll just go, right. okay, help. Yeah. And, and you call other casting directors. Uh, casting directors are very good about that. I will, you're a collegial group? Absolutely. You know, I will call Jay Bender. I will call Daniel Swee, who are two friends of mine who are also casting directors. They will call me. You know, we'll call each other and go, okay, I'm out of ideas. Here's what I've come up with. Who else can you think of? And we always help each other. Um, that's it's a, that's it's not a, an insignificant little statement, I think, because I think there are parts in the theater that aren't that collegial. It's very collegial, and it's also something you can then say to directors to ease their mind. You know, you will say, I've gone over my list, and I've called Jay, and mm -hmm. I've called Daniel, and gone over their list for this part, and none of us can come up with another idea. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a way of, you know, if directors are stuck, they'll pick up a phone and call a casting director they've worked with before. So it's also, in some ways, a way of covering your butt. Right. Because then you've done it, and right. you've said, look, I, I have no problem. If he's not happy, I have no problem calling anyone and asking for advice. You know, the agent thing is, is a different matter. There are some agents, very few, I must say, that if they say, you must see this person, I would bring them directly in for a director. That's unusual. Mm -hmm. um, because for the most part, if it's someone I don't know, there's no reason why they won't come in and pre-screen for me. Um, agents 
are one of the trickier parts of being a casting director, uh, particularly when you're at upper echelon people or your stars, if you will, and or when you're at young people who are just beginning that they think are going to be movie stars. And you have to be very careful with agents to make sure you're getting the proper response from the actor. Um, from the actor, not from the agent. From the Yes. In that, an agent will say, no, they don't want to do that. They're not interested in theater at this time. It's a, a big line you'll get. Because the agent wants to hold them for Hollywood. For Hollywood. But for the television actor. film. But the actor may not know that this is being offered. In fact, in many cases, when, when I meet with, or when Todd and I meet with, uh, Todd Haynes, who's the artistic director of The Roundabout, when we meet with a star, they will give us their home number and say, if it's a play, call me directly. Don't call my agent. Don't call my manager. Call me. Um, because the theater doesn't pay as much as TV and film, and so agents don't, they don't make any money off of people doing theater. I mean, very, very rare, with very rare exceptions. Um, so they don't want that. So one of, the, one of the odder things about being a casting director, and this is where, in my case, being an agent came in handy, is learning to suss out the truth. Right. Learning to tell when an agent is telling you the truth and when you're not quite sure and then you become a detective and try to get the actor's home number from someone else and make sure you've gotten in touch with the actor to make sure they really knew that this was a possibility and what, what they really wanted. It's one of the odd quirks of being a casting director. But I, I also um, assume that The Roundabout now has an extraordinary history of stars, if you will, yes. who, have, who come to New York and are in a play for a period of time, eligible for Tonys and stuff like that. I would imagine that, that agents would get to understand that, or is it still the same old thing? They do. No, they do. And, and certain agencies are much better about it than they used to be. Um, but it's still something you, you, you have to feel out. It's also it's something that comes in handy, interestingly enough. My not-for-profit work comes in handy with commercial producers because I do have a relationship with the agents that handle stars because of, because of the, the array of actors that have worked at the Roundabout. And that is another reason producers hire you. They hire you for your connections with agencies. Um, you know, who can get an agent, again, we're talking the upper echelon people, who can get an agent on the phone, get the phone calls returned, and get the answers. And that's another reason a producer will decide to hire a casting director instead of casting director B, you know, do, those relationships. Do, are those do you, relationships. it's interesting, um, do you feel that, that being a casting director at a not-for-profit, being based at a not-for-profit um, puts you in a different position vis-a-vis -vis the commercial world? I mean, if you do a Broadway show, mm -hmm. will the call still be thought of as, oh, that's just the not-for-profit guy, even if you have something for a star to offer that no. might be? Because I've done so many commercial shows and The Roundabout has had, uh, I mean, one of the reasons I started doing commercial shows was The Roundabout had a season in which we, I think we had Four shows moved, three shows moved, four shows. And when the space of a year moved to Broadway and convert to Broadway shows, bro a proper production contract. And uh, I think from that, you know, many, that's how I got to know a lot of commercial producers. Right. Um, but no, because agents are, are used to that and there are advantages to both. Um, many stars prefer the not for profit route these days because even though we pay $1,000 a week or whatever it may be, uh, it's 16 weeks. So there's a short commitment. They get to do a play they've always wanted to do. Uh, Not-for-profit can offer them the chance of doing, we just did a production of The Women, which is 28 people. We did Man Who Came to Dinner for Nathan Lane uh, a year ago, which also, I think, had 32 people in it. You couldn't do that as a commercial producer. And if you did do it as a commercial producer, the actor would have to sign for a run of a year because it would be like being in a musical. 
So they get offered things that they can't get offered in the commercial world, and therefore they'll go not-for-profit. In, in your roundabout position, do you have, Katie Finneran, for, for example, right. do you find somebody like that and think, that's Eliza Doolittle now? Or do you, do, you, do you have a part that you think somebody like that should play, and then you can say to Todd, you know, let's put this together, starting you with the casting idea? Don't, you tend to do that with stars. You don't tend to do that with people who aren't. I mean, that's just a the cold, people, hard fact yeah. of the theater business, and that's commercial and not-for-profit. Um, you can have favorite actors, you know. Um, the public actually does. I mean, uh, around favorite actors right. as opposed to star actors, forgive me. We, um, so that, you know, not so much. I mean, mm -hmm. you, they're, they're, what you do is when you, when you first know you're doing a project, um, there will be your favorite actors that you go, wow, wouldn't it be great if I can get this person this job? Mm -hmm. Now, we're in an era where there's a lot of colorblind casting, and a lot of people like it. Is the role of casting director something that's open to minority people and women? And Absolutely. I mean, uh, absolutely. The casting director positions itself, there are, there are, there are very few, oddly enough, African-American casting directors in theater. In fact, I can't think of one in theater. There are quite a few in television and film. Um, but ca casting was always a position, one of the first positions that women could rise to power in any of the industries in. It was one of the first ones that was really open to women, casting was, um, in L.A. And Why do you think that is? I think because it is a position that has become more important over the years. So it's not a position that was, that was identified as a male position in the beginning if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. it, was, uh, it is a position that has grown in importance over the years. Um, and so it was, because it was a little more amorphous, it was a way women could get into the business when things were much more of a boys club. Um, just generally more of a boys club. Just generally more of a boys club. Um, oh, we'll, let the, we'll let the little girl do the casting because we're really going to decide that. Mm -hmm. Casting has become much more important than that and much more vital force, but it is a way women got in. But but multicultural casting is actually one of the other things that, that happens. It's a very important part of a, the beginning of a casting process, which is, are we open to, you know, and this is a really thorny issue for directors and casting directors. If you're doing a Shaw play and it is specifically set in a time and place and it's about the social mores of that time and place, is multicultural casting appropriate? Right. You know, and that is a, a major topic of dis debate, discussion, conversation, argument amongst all, uh, amongst the unions, amongst directors, amongst, you know, uh, that's one of the, that may be the single thorniest issue in casting right now. But I would also think that you as a casting director, you have to take, again, you have to take your cue from the director. You do. And it's also, as a not-for-profit theater, we have to take our cue from the director. But there are times when you say to a director, if, if the show is obviously open to that. Uh, musicals in particular mm -hmm. are good for this. Um, Shakespeare, because it's not a world where you're actually recreating the world. It's, it is, in many ways, a non-realistic setting. Then why not? Right. You know? And then you get into the... Uh, you, so it, it's something you do try to force on a director if you think it is appropriate. But more often than not, again, you have, to, you have to accept the director's vision and accept the way he wants to do the, role, the, the show. Are there actors' equity rules about in, uh, multiracial or color? There actually casting? aren't. I mean, there are, 
as a not-for-profit theater, every year you have to fill out a quota form. You have to tell them how many uh, minority actors you have hired. Um, and it becomes a sticking point. Mm -hmm. uh, but it is not, there are no, there are no quotas. I mean, they're, they're, the rules aren't that strict. Mm -hmm. do, do you as casting director negotiate any of the contracts with the actors? With the roundabout, I do. Uh, although... Not a lot of negotiating. There's not a lot of negotiating. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, it's basically, I do salary and billing, which are the only two things. I mean, it's basically, this is what we're doing for this role, and this is what the billing is. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, that's it. And in the commercial world, I don't have anything to do with it. Again, you often become the middleman, even in a negotiation, if it's particularly heated between the general manager and the agent you oftentimes are called upon to step in and try to bring reason or let the director know what's going on because the general manager won't necessarily let the director know and right. the director can then kind of come in and say, no, I must have this actor, you must agree to these terms or, or say to the, direct, uh, to the agent, you're not going to get this, give this battle up or you're going to lose this job. Right. So again, you're a middleman. And, but and at the end of a day of auditions, when you sit down with the director and the producer, and they say, "Okay, this is the person that we want to cast," then right. you're the one who tells the general manager, or you, you call the agent. How does that? I, if it's a commercial, I tell I do both. I call the agent and I fax to the general manager. We fax offer memos. If it's if it's a commercial show, you fax an offer memo so that you have the name of the actor, the name of the role, the agent, all the agent's contact information, and the actor's resume. So that the general manager knows what it is, what level of actor they're dealing with when they go to negotiate a contract in a in a commercial setting, because it does make a big difference, you know. And do you do you usually give the, give agents an <clears throat> an inkling of whether their client is is looking good? You have to. I mean, the 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 worst thing in the world would be to walk out of an initial audition session because basically what you have is an initial set of auditions. And then, for the most part, one set of finals. Now, that also depends on the director. Many directors do numerous sets of callbacks. But um, you hope to try to build it up to one day of, of finals. And if someone's come in on an, on an initial day, you must run to the phone and say, we are very interested in this actor. Please don't let them go anywhere until we right. have our callbacks. Because you don't want to lose that actor in the right. interim. Obviously, if they get a TV or film job, you, you lose will. the actor. Right. But basically, what you're hoping to do is stake that claim in so that if any other theater jobs come up... At least you're, you're there. You're there, and if they're really interested in an actor and they do have another job and have to make a decision, can we go ahead and make an offer? Do we do a special session to see this, uh, this actor again? Those sorts of things. Now, I, I have been singularly impressed with the casting, the cast that you have assembled, I assume you have assembled for Cabaret since it's now been running right. for, for four years. Right. Um, when a show like that works, and you know, obviously, people knew around the opening that this was going to be a good show and it was going to run for, for, for a while, do you go back to your old lists when you have to replace them, or do you throw them away and start all over again now that actors have really sol solidly made uh, you know, the character and the part? Well, it depends on... Things can be redefined, but in a show like Cabaret that's run now for... I think we're, we're, we're going into our fifth year now. There are roles that can become different ways, and as you're on your 12th, Sally, 
bowls, uh, you will think of a different way to go. You know, uh, that's one of the jobs of trying to keep a show fresh. But you've you also know? found stars that nobody, in, I would never would have dreamed that some of those people could even do it. What's an interesting thing about that show is women really want to play Sally Bowles. Uh, and we've had great luck at getting stars to come in as, as a ninth replacement, a tenth replacement. Do they audition? Will stars audition for that? They, they all audition. What, a lot of what happened is they auditioned very early on. After the show was a big hit, we did quite a few auditions. I haven't had an audition for a Sally in two years because the Sallys that we have cast have come from that set of auditions that we did when the show was at its peak really? of being hot. So... Where is Even Molly Ringwald, someone like who's doing it now? Yeah. They all auditioned back then. Wow. Um, so, and then we've, you know, it's people we've said, okay, we'd like them, and then they wouldn't be available when we offered it to them, or uh, the time wasn't right, and then the time becomes right. You know, we offered it to Brooke Shields three times before she said yes. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I mean, the, a long-running show can be a really difficult thing for a casting director because particularly in a commercial not-for-profit or commercial setting, when you're in your fourth year, the battle cry becomes, get us a star, and we, need, we can stay open. We need it for the box office. We need it right. for the box office, and we need it to stay open. Uh, and so that becomes a challenge. But, but also, in, I mean, Alan Cummings' performance was extraordinary, and I've never seen anything like it. But how to replace him must have been quite a challenge. It was a challenge, and interestingly enough, on that role... No stars wanted to do it. We, you know, when, when, and Natasha was brilliant, Richardson, who yeah. originally played Sally and won the Tony, as well as Alan uh, winning the Tony. The women were lining up. They all called. They all wanted to audition. They all wanted to play Sally. And I don't know if it's the ambisexuality of the character, but no stars. We've never had a star, star You're right. no, but play. We've had up-and-coming Broadway actors play it. Uh, Michael Hall's also another good example of someone that was someone I saw early on and kept going, kept forcing them on directors and readings. And in fact, the way he got Cabaret was I was casting a production with Sam Mendes of a Stephen Sondheim musical that, that hasn't happened yet called Wise Guys. And we had used Michael in a reading and we were stuck on an MC. And I hadn't thought of Michael, I have <laughs> to say, because it wasn't a way I'd thought of doing it. And Sam turned to me and went, we should use Michael. Get Michael in here this afternoon. Let's see him. I bet you he could do this role. And from doing the MC in Cabaret, he got Six Feet Under, which is the HBO series he's currently on. Um, so sometimes it's not, even though it's your idea in the beginning with the director, it becomes the director's idea yeah, eventually. Yeah. Uh, but in the case of that show, stars didn't want to touch that role. But it's been nice because we've been able to maintain a, a star and an up and so that you have something for everyone. Yeah, you know, something no. for, the, for the New York theater goer who's always on the look for the interesting actor that they want to be among hugely dependent on tourists, and a name that they recognize that, that they're comfortable coming to see. Would you have been in the same position had the Follies production run? With, we would with, have been. With lists of people interested in doing the parts? We would have been. I mean, we were, if, if Follies had been successful, I think it was the same thing we were counting on. Although in that show, of course, you have those smaller roles that you can fill with, because with, uh, it was very hard to cast those leads with, with uh, stars. Yeah. You know, because, again, uh, certain ages are very difficult to get into the theater. And men in their 40s is probably, that's the single hardest. Men, in, men from 40 to 60, that's the, most difficult, that's the most difficult age range to cast because in that time in their lives, 
that is when men are most apt to be doing television and film and making a lot of money. Right. And that's always the toughest thing to cast. Do you teach courses? And are there courses in casting? Not in casting, no. I mean, it's, it's an instinctual thing. Um, you know, my courses and my teaching is hiring an intern and seeing if they work out. <laughs> on, the had, on the job. On the job. And it's, it's uh, mostly what, what casting directors will do. I don't do very many of these. My associates do quite a few of them. Is they will do one-on-ones uh, -on with actors. Uh, studios or groups of actors will hire casting directors to come in and watch scenes and give critiques. Or I will go to talk to, Joanna Merlin's had me come in to talk to the NYU graduating class about how a casting director is going to affect an actor's life and stuff like that. Because that's an audition class that Joanna Merlin teaches, Noah? No, she teaches an acting class. I so see. I will come into the graduating class and, and just answer questions about what does a casting director do, you know. Do you also, do you see your role sometime, I mean, you talked about it being the middleman, but also in, um, the actor coming into audition, I mean, it's a horrible situation. Do you, do you sort of have the kid gloves? You, that, that is, it's also physically you're the middleman. I mean, you, I am the person that brings someone into a room. So one of your biggest goals, one of my biggest goals is always to keep both sides of the room calm and open. And it can be very difficult. You, you want to keep a good atmosphere in the room, in the audition room. You want to try to keep it light with the director and everyone else. That's hard sometimes, but you do your best. You don't want a chilly room. I've been very fortunate in that I've had very few chilly rooms. Um, and it's as a casting, atmosphere. it's an atmosphere, and and it is set by the director. I mean, the casting director can, you know, again, that's a place where you change. There are more formal situations. There are there are directors who are incredibly informal, and therefore you can kind of do that that kind of adapt your tone to that. The most important thing is when you go out into that room to bring an actor in to seem calm, to seem welcoming to seem, you know, that's never let them particularly see you be anxious because it will only translate to the actor, and you don't want them to see that uh, because it's a horrible situation for them. What do you do if some college chum of yours now has a daughter who wants to be an actor in New York and you get a telephone call, you've, you've got to see my daughter? You do it. Uh, or more to the point, for me, it's when someone on the board has a daughter who wants to be a director. <laughs> right. Then you have to do it. Uh, and you sit and you talk to them and you answer their questions. You but do you, do you also, uh, that, I didn't mean to be quite that close in, but if there's somebody from a, a little bit and you, know, and you think, well, may, I don't know if this is, uh, this person has either you know, graduated, gradu come from someplace right. that you wouldn't normally find right. it. Do you or do you send somebody in your office to, to see them work? Or do you well, now, if you're talking, I mean, one of the things that happens in a casting office is, you know, I don't tend to go to the smaller, th to the way off things. I don't. Um, Just because you don't have I, time. I don't have time. I mean, if you're seeing 45 Broadway shows a year and an equal amount of, of those shows, and I go to London two or three times a year, and I, I tend to travel a lot to see shows in other cities, Chicago, Los Angeles, wherever. So, so you that do, is, you, yeah, it's just it, you do go to a lot of, it's just not the off, off, off Broadway yeah, kind of thing. That isn't what I do. That is, in fact, what I have a staff to do. It's, it, you know, that's, it depends on where you are in the scheme of things. And I count on my associates to do that, to be in touch with that sort of thing and to come to me and say, I saw this kid in a showcase and they're fantastic. You should see them. And then I'll bring them in for a pre-screen or I will bring them directly in for the director depending on how, what the situation is. And do you get resumes daily? Yes, which, uh, which again, the associates tend to look at. Although, you know, one of the, you'll get postcards from actors you know 
And I, I remember being stuck on a roll in 1776, and I happened to get a postcard from an actor by the name of Richard Poe, who was going to be on an episode of Law and & Order, and I went, that's it, that's who we're looking for. And I don't know if I would have thought of Richard if I hadn't gotten that postcard. So, you know, those so, things uh, do happen. So obviously part of being a casting director is keeping your eyes and ears open to absolutely everything. Everything. And not, you know, and not shutting out. And, and I think one of, the, one of the traps we can fall into is not being open to new ideas and not being open to being more expansive. Again, I was talking to a director about this last night. There are certain directors that I have a relationship with where I can say to them, look, I don't know how this is going to work. This is from left field, but I want to give this a shot. Or this is a favor. I need to do this. You know, if my relationship with the director is such that I can do that, I'll do that. And I'm much more open to seeing people I might not normally see. Um, if it's a director on a very tight time frame or, you know, on Copenhagen, in, in all cases, I, I think we saw eight actors maybe, for the original cast of Copenhagen, because Michael was very specific about what he wanted so he, to see, and I knew to bring in, I'll bring in these two, and these three, and this two, and we cast it. Um, that makes it sound so easy, and it is on that note <laughs> that we actually have to end. We could go on all, all afternoon, but thank you very much, thank you. Jim. We've been talking with casting director Jim Carnahan. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Ted Chapin. The American Theatre Wing's Guide to Careers in the Theatre is a project of the American Theater Wing and the New York Public Library's Billy Rose Theater Collection, Theater on Film and Tape Archive.